Don't know about you, but this has just seemed to be a wonderful service so far. I'll try not to mess it up. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of work has gone into this, and I appreciate that. I loved hearing the children sing and, and uh, just in Arnold, of course, but it's, it's been a beautiful service. I don't know about you, but it, it seems strange to me. It feels strange to me not having a pastor. Uh, it just, uh, you know, there's grief around that. There's uncertainty around that. I'm, I'm kind of a visual thinker, and, and, and I, I say this oftentimes at the hospital, that, you know, the snow globes, you know, you shake them up, and everything starts flying around, and everything is unsettled. And I, I think that happens in life sometimes, where, where things are just kind of up in the air, and, it, and it's hard to know where to put your feet, and it, it feels uncomfortable. It's can can feel a little bit out of control. And, and I know when, when things feel out of control to me, that makes me feel anxious. And when I feel anxious, I want to grab more control and try to make sure everything is in its place and it has its structure. And, and so there's, there's this kind of a feeling of, of being up in the air and not sure where to put our feet. Um, just this, this sense of void and a sense of vacuum. Um, the church, when it is without a pastor, and this happens obviously occasionally in, in, in the history and the life of any church, it, it's, it's always a time of transition, a time of reflection. It's a, it's a time of thinking about, well, who are we and where have we been and, and where are we going and how do we, how do we establish a new normal? How do, we, how do we vision ourselves and how do we move forward? And I'm not, I don't want to make you anxious. I'm not suggesting anything today. So, so relax. I'm not going to take you into uncharted territory or, or, or do anything uncomfortable or, or anything like that. But, but to just kind of recognize where we are and how do we, how do we live with this? Because transition can be, can be painful. It can be unsettling and challenging and difficult. And it can also be exciting and, and hopeful and, and all of those things. But it's something that we share together. It's something that, that we do together. And I, I think it was interesting, you know, this, this passage that we, that we read a minute ago was the early church in the midst of transition. Obviously, the disciples and those believers had been following Christ, and then all of a sudden their world is turned upside down on, on what we now call Good Friday, that day was anything but good when it was taking place. And, and Easter and then afterwards and the resurrection and all of those things. And Jesus was with them for a time. And, and then he left town. You know, he, he ascended to heaven and, and, and he's no longer physically present with them. Also, Judas. You know, <clears throat> Judas was one of them. They loved him. He was the keeper of the purse. They trusted him. You know, we look back at that and, and we think, you know, almost think that, that Jesus chose the 11 and then Judas was also there kind of hanging around, you know, that, that he chose 11 plus 1. But Judas was, was one of them. They, they shared life together. They loved him and, and thought that he loved them. And suddenly he goes off on this other track. And he not only betrayed Jesus, he betrayed them. And they were deeply hurt and, and, and all of this. So, so this was a, a group that was shaken. And I think it was interesting that when Peter stood up among them, 
a group numbering about 120. I don't know how many of us are here today. But this was it in the whole world. 120 in the whole world who were followers of Christ gathered there that day. It's not a big number. How do they move forward? Where do they go from here? And it's interesting, as you look at what they did, they, they looked to Scripture. They established some criteria about replacing Judas. Uh, they took it to the congregation, and they sought the will of God. Well, those sound like really good principles for how do, how do we move forward? How do we share life together as a congregation? We look to Scripture. We, we establish some criteria, some boundaries. We take it together to the congregation, but searching the will of God but how do we do that in real life? You know, sometimes it's not that cut and dried. I think it's interesting when we, when we talk about taking it to the scriptures. It's interesting for Peter stood up and said to them, It is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Those are taken from two different psalms. Both of them are imprecatory psalms, by the way, psalms of cursing about people who have betrayed or spoken evilly against people of faith. And, and, and the, the, the psalmist is praying for God to, to have judgment upon that person. But, but I, I find it interesting. On the one, he says, may there be no one to take his place. And the other says, may another take his place of leadership. Well, as we sit down together and start looking at Scripture, I don't know, we may have some of these folks saying, well, the Bible says nobody's supposed to take his place. Somebody else saying, well, the Bible says may someone else take his place. And so when we start discerning Scripture together, we may find that people of good faith are looking at different verses and finding different things and interpreting them differently, and all of a sudden, it gets a little sticky. You know, we may be very comfortable, for example, in calling a woman to be our next pastor, or maybe not. We may assume that we are. There are a lot of churches that that's just out of the question. And we study the same scripture. And, and we're trying to follow the same Lord, and yet we, when we wrestle with Scripture, sometimes it's, it's not so cut and dried. And they, you know, they established some criteria, but they said, okay, let's, let's put these two names out there. Let's put Barsabbas and, and, and Matthias out there as, as two people who meet the criteria. And then I thought it was really interesting. Then they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven. Now, I, I've, I've searched, I can't find any, anybody who knows exactly what it means to cast lots. Now, we see it in the Old Testament. There was a time where, you know, you cast lots to discern the will of God. But then we also saw that soldiers were casting lots for Jesus' clothing while he was dying on the cross. And so it can be used as a form of gambling. And I don't know if it's like throwing dice or it's, you know, rock, paper, scissors or, or you know, let's, let's just, you know, flipping a coin. 
uh, you know, maybe pulling names out of a hat. Well, if we're going to follow scripture, let me tell you something. We're not going to do that here. <laughs> you know, we're not. You know, can you imagine? Let's, let's say we get 120 resumes. People saying, dear blank Baptist church, and they fill in the name. Uh, I feel that God is leading me to be your next pastor. And you get this resume with about eight typos in it and whatever else has been mimeographed of all things. It's that old. Uh, some of the young people don't even know what a mimeograph is. Uh, some of the, but, 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 you know, here, here you've got the, you, we're not going to just take the names off those resumes and then put them in a hat. And let's have somebody come up and draw a name. Who's, Lord, who is our next pastor going to be? Seven and a half. Well, no, that's not going to work, you know. Or maybe we'll pull it out and it says flex fit, one size fits all. Uh, that may be more appropriate than just seven and a half because that just fits a certain narrow, narrow group there. I mean, we're not going to do it that way. And so this, this matter of, of discerning the will of God can sometimes be a little bit difficult. Um, and then establishing criteria. Says it needs to be someone who was with us from the beginning of John's baptism until the resurrection, because we need someone who will witness to the resurrection of Christ. And so, so there, there's some parameters there. Let's let's set some some criteria. So, how do we do that? How do we start then thinking about well, what do we want in a pastor? What criteria do we set? I read about one pastor who decided to go to his, his leadership board. I don't remember elders or deacons or whatever else. And said, you know, what, how do you expect me as a pastor to spend my time? What do you, how do you prioritize these things? And they listed things like prayer and visiting the sick and sermon preparation and visiting the shut-ins and administration and sermon preparation and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, when he added them all up, it was 114 hours a week. Like 16 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, I, I haven't done the math on it. But, I mean, how do, you, how do you live up to that? And, and I mean, quite frankly, uh, you know, we have our, you know, those were all unwritten expectations. These are all things that the folks, well, this is what the pastor ought to be doing. This is what he ought to be spending his time. These, these should be his priorities. Uh, I, don't, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you would like to spend your life trying to live up to the unwritten expectations of 200 different people? And then being held accountable for that. I mean, that's, that's a pretty tough thing. One of the things I like about being chaplain is I have one boss in the hospital. That's, that's pretty simple, you know. Uh, that's, that's okay. But the interesting thing is that this is what church is like. All of us love this church. All of us want the best for this church. We're emotionally invested in it. And we all have our hopes and dreams for it. We all have expectations. We all have this this idea of what Spring Creek should be like. What we love about it and what we hope for it. It's an interesting thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Was a German theologian wrote an interesting book called Life Together. Uh, Bonhoeffer was was one of those pastors who opposed Hitler. 
there was a time in Germany when the, the church was supported by the state. And uh, Bonhoeffer and, and Niemuller and some others broke away from that. And they, they established this free independent church. And they were figuring out how to be community together, how to be a church together. And in his reflections on that, he talked about how much of the conflict that occurs in church is because, he says, quote, the the serious Christian is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be like. And then we try to realize it. And so the, the, the idea is this, that we, we get this idea of it. this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what our life together should be like. And we, we may hold that very sincerely. We pray about it. We seek God's will about it. We get this conviction about it that this is how God wants things to be. And then we give ourselves to making that happen. Now, the conflict comes when I've got this vision. But it's not the same as your vision and your vision and your vision. And you've got this idea of what the church should be like. And all of a sudden, why aren't you doing things the way they're supposed to be done? And we end up butting heads with each other. Because we have this vision of an ideal community and somehow they don't necessarily mesh with each other. And nobody's the bad guy here. We're all trying to do the will of God. And then holding other people accountable to doing the will of God as we understand the will of God. You know, in in 1620, the pilgrims came, Plymouth Rock. A few years later, 1628, and then a a larger group in in 1630, uh, Puritans came uh, to the United States. The, 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 The pilgrims... Uh, were separating themselves from the Church of England. The Puritans wanted to purify the Church of England. And the Puritans came to America with this incredible ideal. They were coming out of England, away, separating themselves out from, from, from all of the, the confusion and all of the turmoil, all that was going on there, all of that milieu that was taking place. In them. They came to this wilderness and to them, it was wilderness in a lot of different ways. One, it was wilderness in that it was untamed in their, in their minds. It was un, uncivilized in their minds. It was, and also, the wilderness was the place where Satan is. You know, when, when Jesus was tempted, he went off into the wilderness. And the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And this is the place where Satan has reigned. This is the place where... Demonic influence is, is the greatest. This is the place where the, the Christian community is most challenged and oftentimes most purified. And so their idea was to come to this place and they were going to establish in the wilderness a pure church. We're going to do this right. We're, we're going to do away with all of the distractions of all of the others. All these other religions and faiths, we're going we're, we're to be this pure community in the midst of the wilderness. And we are going to do it right. And they, they, they came out of a, a time where they were expecting the imminent return of Christ. They thought Jesus was going to be coming back any time now. Uh, a few years. And, and, and so what they wanted to do was create this community 
where Jesus would be welcomed. This is the place where Jesus would want to come. And there's all kinds of language about, you know, in the, in the Old Testament about, I mean, in, in the book of Revelation about how God has one foot here and one foot there. Well, one foot's going to be in Europe and the other foot's going to be in, in this community right here in the wilderness. God's going to reign right here. And so they had a very clear understanding of what it means to follow the will of God. And you don't deviate from that. And, and the challenge was every time someone raised a different kind of doctrine, anyone, anytime someone challenged the right thinking of the congregation or the right interpretation of scriptures or the right way to act, then this was, this was Satan attacking the church, trying to destroy its purity, trying to keep it from being this city on a hill that was going to be a light to the world. Well, there were some Quakers in the neighborhood. Now, the Quakers at this time were not the the people we think of today as kind of being calm and sedate. And and, and, uh, some of the the, the Quakers were called Quakers because they believed in this inner light. The Holy Spirit within them would give them direction. And sometimes they literally shook in anticipation of that happening. So they were called Quakers. And some of them were kind of weird in that they, they looked at the Old Testament. You know, some of the Old Testament prophets... They, they went around prophesying naked. They got people's attention. <laughs> well, some of the Quakers started doing that too. I mean, the men and the women alike, they'd show up stark naked. And, well, that kind of disturbs the congregation a bit. That kind of disrupts the service. Somebody walks in here naked or maybe you start disrobing, we're probably going to, that's what everybody's going to talk about today is, is when Larry got naked. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's a problem. Well, one of these uh, happened to be Mary Dyer. And she was a mother of six, and, all, and she was a Quaker, and she just kept disrupting. So they took her out of, the, out of the colony. You can't be here. And she'd come back and say, you can't be here. And she came back again. You they imprisoned her. They did all this. She came back again. Finally, they had to hang her. Because she was such a threat to what they felt like the church should be. And they hanged lots of Quakers in those days. And they beat people and they flogged people. Because they had this vision of what church should be like. And if you don't fit that vision, you are of Satan. You are are the personification of evil. You are trying to bring destruction upon the people of God. And the interesting thing in all of that is they were following their ideal. They were following their vision. They were following their image of what they thought the church should be like. But were they following God? And you see, that's, that's the danger. Uh, one, we may not all agree on the dream, and so we have conflict, but maybe even more threatening is when we do all agree on the dream. And we commit ourselves to this image of what we think Spring Creek ought to be like. We commit ourselves to this ideal 
this, this wonderful dream. And it may be wonderful, it may be beautiful, it may be, oh my gosh, it may be elegant. But we can so commit ourselves to our vision of how we think things ought to be that, that we no longer listen to what God would have us to be. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer says is that God, because of his grace, wants us to live in truth and not in some kind of dream. And so God, in his grace, shatters our dreams. And God, in his grace, disillusions us. I don't know about you, but I find it painful when I'm disillusioned. There's a lot of grief there. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, where do I go from now? Where, where, what? This is what I expected, and God isn't doing that. God isn't showing up that way. So what do I do now? Quite frankly, some of us may have been disillusioned in the last several weeks, months, whatever. Felt like, wow, Spring Creek isn't what I thought it was or what I hoped it would be or what this or whatever else. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we need to let go of our dreams about Spring Creek so that we can search for what God has for Spring Creek. Maybe we're right where we need to be. Let me offer four suggestions about just moving forward. I think the first thing is to remember that we are a divine fellowship, not a human fellowship. You know, none of us would be here today if we did not believe in Christ. I wouldn't show up here if I didn't believe in Christ. Why would I come here if I didn't? If I weren't trying to follow Jesus. Why would I come here? You are all here today because you're followers of Christ. And our relationship to each other is through Christ. We are brothers and sisters to one another because our primary relationship is to Christ. That's the basis of our fellowship. Yeah, I, I confess, it doesn't hurt my feelings to know that you all didn't come here today to make me happy. <laughs> and I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings. We didn't come here today to make you happy either. This isn't about me, and it's not about you. It's about Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we come. Otherwise, this is just a human organization. We might as well be a Rotary Club or, or, or whatever else, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But we're here because we're followers of Christ, as imperfectly as we may do that. That also means that it's not my church to try to shape according to my will and my wishes my vision and my image and my way of thinking the way things ought to be. It's not your church to try to compel others to fit your image, your vision. It's, it's, it's not mine to say, you've got to live up to my wish dream or you're not being Christian. 
Some of us, as deeply as we love our church, as, as committed as we are to it, and as much as we want for things to be as we think they ought to be, maybe we need to let go a little bit. I, I don't have to control things here. I don't have to make them. I don't have to fix it. It's not mine to fix. It's not mine to fix. It's God's church. And there's something liberating about letting go of the responsibility of thinking that somehow I've got to make this right. And so maybe to let go a little bit. Now that doesn't mean that we, we no longer have a voice. We, we are in this together and it's important that we have a voice. It's important that we, that we give voice to our convictions and our beliefs, and, and what we think is right. And, and as, as I am trying to follow Christ, and as you are trying to follow Christ, for us to speak Christ to one another, and, and to share that together with, with conviction and with belief, but, but also to do so with humility, and to recognize that as fervently as I believe this, I might be wrong. Mm. I mean, it has happened before. And, you know, the interesting thing about being wrong is how many of us think we're wrong while we're being wrong? <laughs> you know, I know I'm being wrong here, but I'm going to, you know, this, I'm going to, you know, most of us, if, if, we're, if we have any, if we're healthy at all, we, we think we're right when we insist on something. And then we look back on it and think, oh, hmm, why? I missed that. And so to have some humility and to listen to one another. And to, to, to really hear and recognize that maybe what I am holding on to so dearly is my own wish dream, my own image, my own hopes. Third thing to remember is that we're a fellowship of sinners. We're not a place where people without sin gather to share a good time together. We're a place where sinners gather, hopefully, to find grace. Now, I find it interesting throughout the letter, you know, throughout the Bible, we are told time after time, in Paul's letters, we are told time after time, forgive one another, forgive one another, forgive one another, forgive one another, forgive one another. You know why he tells us time after time after time after time to forgive one another? It's because time after time after time after time we sin against each other. No need to forgive if we don't sin. We hurt each other sometimes. Ellen and I have been married for over 42 years, and now she's nervous. Um, I have never deliberately tried to hurt Ellen anyway. I've never done that. I cannot tell you how many times we've had disagreements. I can't tell you how many times I have been thoughtless. And I explained to her the reason I'm being thoughtless is because I didn't think of it. <laughs> wasn't like I thought of it and said, I'm not going to do that. It just never occurred to me. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been insensitive, I've been grouchy, I've been this, I've been that. You can stop me anytime. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens when you live in a relationship with one another. We do things, oftentimes inadvertently, where we hurt each other. And it's not, it's not intentional. It's not malicious. But we just do that 
And one of the things that is necessary, I found, at least Ellen found necessary, in, in us being together for 42 years is that there has to be a lot of apologizing and forgiving. If Ellen didn't forgive me, this would have been over a long time ago. You know, oftentimes we read 1 Corinthians 13 when we do a, a, a marriage ceremony. It talks about love is this, love is this. One of the things it says in there is love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, Paul didn't write that for weddings. Paul wrote that to the church. The reason he said it is because there are a lot of wrongs that take place. And we can keep a record of them and fill a log book full of, well, he said this you know, they, da, 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 da. you know hey, we can fill that up really quickly. We have to be responsible for our behavior. We shouldn't just overlook things and ignore things that, that, that bring damage to ourselves and to others. We have to own responsibility for our own behavior when we have hurt others. And then reconciliation is where there's a true forgiveness that takes place. And there's this sense of saying, okay, we are going to be right with each other. We're going to do right to one another. But the, the truth of a, of a, of a you know, the, the, the reality of, of church is that we are a collection of sinners and we hurt each other sometimes. And we have to own that and we have to ask for forgiveness and we have to forgive. And then we need to let it go and not keep a record of wrongs. But to keep working to make this relationship, our relationship with Christ, our relationship with one another, healthy and good. And by this shall all men know that we are his disciples. We love one another. And somehow we find community with each other in spite of our sins, not because we have no sin. And the fourth thing I want to mention is that this isn't dependent upon us. It's not dependent on you and me. Ultimately, we have our place in this as the body of Christ. This is God's church. God is more invested in this than we are. We've had some wonderful people who have been part of the fellowship of this church. I think James Kirkendall comes to mind immediately and and other wonderful people. I'm not going to try to list them because I'll leave people out. They have been here, they have been central, they have died, they have moved on, and other people come in. And this church abides because it is God's church and not mine and not yours. And God is going to see it through. And there's something about this image of being the body of Christ that, yeah, it is Christ. But somehow he makes himself incarnate in us imperfectly. But what an incredible thing that we experience God in our midst through one another. Isn't that miraculous? You know, God can be so invisible, and yet he shows up with skin on him right here. We have all experienced the presence of God here. God is going to see us through. I heard a preacher years ago, African-American preacher, talk about the, the parable about the kingdom of God is like a man who, who found a treasure in a field. And so he sold all that he had and went and got that, bought that field so he could own that treasure. And he said the, the, the field is the church. And there's a treasure in that field. There's a treasure in that church. 
He says, now there are a lot of rocks in that field. But there's a treasure in the field. And there are a lot of weeds and there's a lot of trash. There's a, lot of, there's a whole lot of bad stuff in that field. But there's a treasure in that field. And warts and all the rocks, the weeds, the whatever else we are at Spring Creek, it's who we are. But most of all, we are God's. Most of all, we are God's. And I believe that God has purposes for us and that there's a treasure in this field. And so let's not give up on God and let's certainly not give up on each other. Let's love each other with humility. Let's care for one another. Let's forgive one another. And let's choose to walk together with one another. And let me leave with this. Have no fear, little flock. Have no fear, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Have no fear.